We're going to continue in the study of John chapter 8. And as he mentioned, as we get here, there is a, a pretty significant controversy that the Bible doesn't try to skirt around, but recognizes and leans into with some very specific footnotes that the story of the woman caught in adultery may not, in fact, have been placed here in our Bible in John chapter 8. Uh, there's some good textual evidence that it did, but there's also some really good historical and textual evidence that it may have ended up in uh, Luke 21, for example, at the very end of Luke 21. But n- nonetheless, if, if it was, in fact, perhaps better placed at Luke 21, the last words that we would have heard from Jesus was him standing in the middle of the most raucously celebratory water ceremony uh, during the biggest feast that in terms of population wise of everybody coming into Jerusalem and in the middle of that piercing through the celebration with a statement about himself that if you believe in me he says from within you will flow rivers uh, rivers of, of, of living water wow that's throwing a gauntlet down in the middle of these folks, telling them who he is, that he is no less than God himself, able to send the Spirit, able to give life, able to completely transform anyone and everyone who would come and put all their trust in him. Now, after that, there's a little bit more of conversation among those who are saying, who could he be, who could he be? And then if indeed John 8 should end up somewhere, John 8, 1 through uh, 11 should end up uh, elsewhere, we then end up with these very next words uh, in John chapter 8, starting in verse 12. So follow along with me here. When Jesus spoke again to the people, I'm in verse 12, he said, and this is the second great I am statement in the gospel of John. There are seven big I am statements. The first one we encountered uh, back in John 6 I am the bread of life. And now the second big one. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him. Here you are, appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. This same discussion, by the way, occurred throughout much of John chapter 5. And during that time, Jesus was like, all right, what more do you need? John the Baptist, who you all look at as the man, he testifies to me. Miracle after miracle testifies to me. God in heaven testifies to me. The scriptures themselves testify to me. Matter settled, this guy is legit. Not only is he legit, he is lit. The light of the world, and thus the title of the sermon. Even if I testify on my own behalf, he says, my testimony is valid, for I know where I, for I know where I am going, where I come from and where I'm going. You have no idea where I come from or where I'm going. You judge by human standards, or more literally, you judge according to the, the fleshliness of mankind. I pass judgment on no one, but if I do judge, my decisions are true. This, this whole idea of I don't judge, but I do judge, I don't judge, but I do judge, really all Jesus is doing is distinguishing that he doesn't judge the way that men judge. He doesn't judge according to the flesh, but that his judgment is of a spiritual divine origin. And so that's why there are times where it seems like, well, do you judge or do you not judge? 
That's the distinction he's making, as he does right here. He doesn't judge the way that people judge. I pass judgment on no one, he says, but if I do judge, verse 16, my, my judgments are, tr- my decisions are true because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it's written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. Then they asked him, where is your father? You do not know me or my father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts and the place where the, in the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. I'm, I'm going to uh, just kind of pause for a half a moment here and, and get a, a little kind of historical. Uh, This is a diagram of the temple because right here it mentions where Jesus is saying all of these things and when he is saying all of these things. He's saying all of these things on the last and greatest day of the Feast of Tabernacles. That great festival that commemorates the exodus, the deliverance of God's people, being able to be delivered out of the oppression of Egypt, no longer under the iron yoke of oppression. Out they go under the provision of God, and all along the way, in a desert land, God gives them water. But he does more than that. He gives them light as well. And so the other big deal about this celebratory festival is that in this courtyard, in each of the four corners... Oh, oh, by the way, I'm sorry. This courtyard is where, it says here, he was in, in the courtyard where the treasury... Uh, was was taken in, in the place where the offerings were put. There are colonnades in that, that main square up front there, and under those colonnades is where all of the treasuries would be. They would be a, a series of horn-looking boxes uh, where everyone would place their treasuries. But that big courtyard there is also known as the Court of the Women, and it's, it's massive. Th- that whole complex can fit four football fields within it. So think of going to a, a large football stadium, watching a large game. This, this would not be able to fit in, in the footprint down there in that stadium uh, because it takes up that much space. So this was d- definitely an ancient wonder, to say the least. Now, in that courtyard of the women, each evening there would be a lighting ceremony that was quite remarkable. And it would occur, I'm going to take a different view here. Do you see those four large uh, pillars that are rising there? 80 feet tall, still pretty cool. 80 feet, that's like eight times 10 feet. Okay, so, I don't have quite the analogy on the fly for that one. (laughs) But placed on top of each of those four pillars in the corner during the Festival of Tabernacles, Sukkot, the, the Jewish word for it, would, would have been a large, like, candelabra. You know, think of, like, a menorah that, that uh, is, is lit during Hanukkah. One of those in, in each of those corners would be in place during the festival, and each of those with these massive bowls of oil. I'll describe it uh, here. Let, let me read, actually, uh, from, from the rabbinical teaching on the Sukkot. Uh, it says, Toward the end of the Feast of Tabernacles, people went down into the court of the women, where precautions had been taken to separate men from the women, golden lamps were there, and four golden bowls were on each of them, and four ladders by each. Four young men, 
from the priestly group of youths had jugs of oil in their hand containing about 120 logs. I didn't look up what a log was. Uh, and poured oil from them into the individual bowls. Uh, some have, uh, have suggested maybe, maybe that's about a gallon each, so 120 gallons. Wicks were made from the discarded trousers of the priests and from their girdles. There was no court in Jerusalem that was not bright from the light of the place of drawing water, uh, which is the, the ceremony area here. Men of piety and known for their good works danced before the crowd with torches in their hands and sang before them songs and praises. And the Levites stood with zithers and hearts and cymbals and trumpets and other musical instruments without number, beyond number, and on the 15 steps, which led down from the court of the Israelites into the court of the women, and which corresponded to the 15 songs of the steps of the Psalms. Uh, so, in, in a sense, what would go on here every day, and especially every night, would be a, a, a party that would... As a matter of fact, right before this, the phrase that's used right before this, uh, in, in this description, says... He who has not seen the joy of this place has not seen joy in his whole lifetime. And this is not rave party scene. This is piety infused by a love and gratitude for all that God has done. The excitement for the provision of the Lord and being able to deliver one out of the bondage that was Egypt. And now under the boot of Rome... All of Israel raucously celebrates again. Why? In anticipation of the second exodus. In anticipation of the next time that God will send his Messiah and bring his deliverance to all people. And thus, messianic fever, as we've mentioned all throughout our study of the Gospels, messianic fever is at a feverish pitch. It's a, it's a, a massive heightened expectation that perhaps... Perhaps this is the time, this is the festival, this is the moment. Now will be our, our deliverance where we will run out in song with the light guiding us every step of the way. And uh, for, for sure, the, the light played a, a really massive role in, in all that goes on in this uh, idea. Matter of fact, in Exodus 14.20, the, the first Exodus, it talks about the Egyptian army deciding, I don't think we want those people to go after all. And they run them down with their tanks, with their chariots. And as they're running them down, hemming them in at the Sea of Reeds, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel, Exodus 14.20 says, throughout the night, a cloud. Again, when we think cloud, we're, we're thinking something that would be dark. This is a cloud that would have been filled with brilliance and light and fire. A cloud brought darkness to one side and light to the other. So neither went near the other all night long. And this is the same pillar of light, pillar of cloud, pillar filled with fire. Now, now fire is the only source of light at, at night for an ancient civilization. Uh, there's, you know, LEDs are really a long way off, by the way. <laughs> but, but, but nonetheless... They, as, as this pillar of fire is, is providing light, it was also why they would follow it everywhere that it went. And as Jesus says here, I am the light of the world, follow me, is what is attached to this very idea. Now, in Luke 9, 28, 
there's an, an interesting observation about the next Exodus. Because if Jesus is to be the Messiah who initiates the next Exodus, well then, he's this general, this revolutionary. And, and by the way, in Luke 9, he just said that he was a revolutionary. Luke, Luke 9.23, he described he is a revolutionary leader. That if you're going to follow me, you're going to take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. If you want to save your life, you're going to lose it. But if you're willing to lose your life for me, you will save it. What, what good is it to gain the whole world, but, but lose or forfeit your very soul? And then he then goes to the top of a mountain right after this establishment of a revolutionary call to follow him goes to the top of this mountain, the Mount of Transfiguration, and there, before the eyes of Peter, James, and John, transfigures into a figure of light. Beaming, lightning, light. Brighter than they could have ever imagined. And as, as Luke captures this, John doesn't talk about this, but Luke does, and he says that as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed. His clothes became bright as a flash of lightning. Wow. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. But listen to what it says they talked about. They spoke of his exodus. Wow, that would not have been lost on these guys. And now, Luke, who is happy to let us know that Peter does not know what he's talking about in a moment. I think, nonetheless, Peter's on to something here. Because Peter realizes, wait a minute. This is the light that we are to follow. This is the one who's going to initiate an exodus. If we're going to have that, well then, we're going to need tents. We're going to need Sukkot. We're going to be out of here. And as, as the nation has its exodus again, we're going to need to be set up in these tabernacles, in these tents again. And so Peter, his companion is very sleepy. But when they became fully awake, they saw the glory of the two men. And Peter said to him, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three shelters, or Sukkot, what this feast is about. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And then, of course, thank you very little, Luke, my buddy. I thought you had my back, Luke, Peter's saying. And then he says, he did not know what he was saying. This theme of light is way too massive to really have a full survey of the Bible. But I, I want to just tee in on just a couple more passages before we drill down and, and read the rest of, of John here for a second. Because to the, to the Jews, light was not the being or the character of God. To the Jews, light was Yahweh in action. Light was the expression of salvation for the people from God. So, for example, in, Luke, uh, in Psalm 44, it says in verse 3, It was not by their sword they won the land, nor did the arm bring them victory. It was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your face, for you loved them. What was it that brought their deliverance? The light, the very light of God out of love for them. In Psalm 18, it says, You, Yahweh, you, Lord, keep my lamp burning. My God turns my darkness into light. With your help, I can advance against a troop. With my God, I can scale a wall. If you can appreciate the flavor of what this psalmist is saying here, he has such confidence 
and exuberance of having come from darkness into light, of having clarity and security and wonder. And with all of that to say, with you, Lord, I'm going to run through a wall. I'm going to take on an army. I'm going to bring it on. I mean, it's that idea of knowing like God is with me and his light is the obvious sign that that is the case. And for the Israelites to hear Jesus now come before them and those that would trust that he really is God speaking for them, this would begin to stir within them. For them, they would hear the light is here. This is not just a Messiah. This is not a military leader. This is not just a better priest. This is deliverance of cosmic proportion. The light, the light has come our way. Now, it's the last day of the feast for these guys. And it's also the recognition in the moment where they're about to take down all these lights. As a matter of fact, they might even be in the process of taking them down. And that's a rather depressing moment. If you want to know about that, just watch my daughter's face as you know we take down Christmas lights each year. That's a girl who loves Christmas. And when she comes home from school and the house is like all lit up and decorated, like, ah, it's Christmas time. Quick, let's play Mariah Carey. Let's enjoy. Christmas. Anyway, but anyway, the, the lights come down. They go into the closet. It's cold. It's dark. And what do we got to look forward to? Pitchers and catchers don't report for two and a half more months. All right, that's minor and seasonal for us. For them, they're going to put these lights away and look back at that temple after these lights are gone and realize the temple is not the temple that it used to be. Because what would happen to that temple? The presence of God would fill the temple with a cloud of glorious light. And as they would look back at that temple and see only darkness, they would be reminded of 1 Samuel 14, of that dreadful proclamation, Ichabod. Ichabod, meaning the glory has departed from us. And as Israel would finish Sukkot with joy, there's always the, the morning after hangover, so to speak. Not because they were literally hungover, but, you know, it's that, that morning after effect of, wow, it's all done. It's all gone. It's all dark. It's all empty. And the glory is gone. But this year, this time is different. Because this is the time when just before all of that would be the unbelieving's attitude at this time, if they would appreciate it, rather than putting it all away, looking at the emptiness, looking at the darkness, they have the opportunity to appreciate the light, the light, the deliverance, the exodus, the salvation, the security, the power. I'm going to run through a wall. I can't believe what we have. How amazing is all of this has now all intervened and disrupted what would have other been otherwise been a morning after drab event is now completely transformed by Jesus. This is thrilling that he picks this time for the I am statement that he has. I'm going to read through this and I'll, and I'll get back to that I am statement. Uh, verse 21. Once more, Jesus said to them, 
I'm going away. You're going to look for me. And you're going to die in your sins. Where I go, you cannot come. This made the Jews ask, will he kill himself? Is that why he says where I go, you cannot come? But he continued, you're far, you are from below, I'm from above. You're of this world, I'm not of this world. I told you, you would die in your sins if you do not believe. And this is actually another I am statement. If you do not believe that I am. And it's just simply what he says there. And there's a whole lot of beautiful baggage that goes with that phrase. If you do not believe that I am, I am he, you will indeed die in your sins. Well, who are you? They asked. Just what I've been telling you from the beginning. Jesus replied, I've got much to say in judgment of you, but he who sent me is trustworthy. And what I have heard from him, I tell the world. They didn't understand that he was telling them about his father. So Jesus says, when you have lifted up the son of man, then you will know that I am he. And that I do nothing of my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. Even as he spoke, many, many believed in him. Uh, and so we're, we're seeing the kind of the dichotomy that begins to initiate here. Those that believe in him are starting to marvel at the absolute magnitude of the metaphor, of the claim, of the man that is before them. But at the same time, that distinction is growing greater among those that have rejected him. And there will be a welling up of a determination to destroy this Jesus. Remember, he came to this feast late. Didn't get there and really make proclamation until the kind of this pinnacle of celebration near the end. Why? Because... There was a death threat upon him. There was a price on his head already because of this determination. Jesus is this bold for, for all of us in the midst of the greatest threats that could ever befall anyone. But yet he's, he's ready to do just that. Now, as, as we go back to this phrase that begins this section, I am the light of the world. There are seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. Seven I am statements that have an object, right? There's a lot of times where he says, I am, I am, I am. That's pretty amazing. Those transcend these I am statements. We've already seen, I am the bread of life. This next one is, I am the light of the world. The next two will come in two chapters, and they are, I am the gate, and I am the good shepherd. After that, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then again, uh, I am the vine, and then finally, I am the resurrection and the life. Now, when he says, I am the gate and the good shepherd, they come right one after another. Bang, bang. But one thing comes right in between the two of them. And that is this phrase, I have come so that they may have life. So that you may have life and have it to the full. Every one of the I am statements have everything to do with life. It's not just I am bread. I am the bread of life. And if you remember, we talked about he chose the word life that meant the zest of life, the fullness of life, the beauty of life. Zoe, not bios, not existing. He's not the light that carries on photosynthesis and your chlorophyll A is able to produce just the right uh, uh, conditions so that, that things can flourish. That's not the light that he's talking about. He's saying that he is a light 
that is able through its piercing truth to cut through the lies that have kept you from life as God has always intended for you. Every one of you here has a life, not just an existence, a bio, but, but a life that is really meant to be yours. But he, said, but, but he says, you know what? If you follow me, if you follow this light, you'll never have to deal with darkness anymore. But isn't that encouraging? And think about, wow, think about that darkness. All that that darkness includes. You know, there's a, a wedding that I did uh, just, just last week. And, and this fellow has shared his testimony a couple times. But I remember wanting to hear his, his love story uh, with, with his bride. But he began first by his love story with Jesus. Because there would have been no love story with his bride if not with Jesus. There would have been no life that he was celebrating if not for Jesus first. But he described his efforts to go after life as anyone living in darkness would go after. And one of the ways he went after it as a single man was an app. I don't know if you've ever heard of this thing. It's called Tinder. Like Kinder, but with a T. Oh, oh, Tinder. Tinder. Thanks that you knew that pronunciation. Um, no, no, he was using Tinder. He's using the Tinder, right? Swipe left, swipe right. You know the thing, right? And, and, and he thought, well, maybe this is how I'll find fulfillment in life. There's something empty inside of me. And maybe if I swipe on just the right person in just the right direction, I don't know if left or right does that. But, but if, I, if, I, if I swipe correctly, then that will be my deliverance. That will be the light. They, oh, I'm shining through. And, and he tried and he tried. And in, in one event, you know, had his hopes up and he had designed this kind of, he's from Tennessee, so this kind of beautiful rustic date and it involved a bonfire and uh, kind of a hike and all these cool events. And, you know, he had it all set up. It took a lot of effort. And just before they were to rendezvous, whoever this Tinder person was, sent him a note saying... I got, I, I got a better offer. I won't be coming. And crestfallen, he decided that he would go ahead and have the whole date anyway. And so he did. He kind of cooked up the, the, the special meal that he had cooked up on a campfire. He created the bonfire. He played the song that, that he had prepared. And then at the end of it, took a gun and put it in his mouth and sat there contemplating the emptiness of life and was only disrupted by the memory of a couple guys actually back here in the campus ministry who had reached out to him and had helped him for a moment know that there was more to life, so much more to life than he ever imagined. If only you would trust, if only you would believe, if only you could get out of the paradigm that it's going to come through all of these man-made approaches that culture has dictated and pressed upon you. And for whatever reason, because things were so epic at that moment, he decided, well, maybe I should at least pursue this first. And he did. And there was Jesus. And he came alive. And he reached his heart. And made all. And, and, he, and he saw 
the fullness and the glory of the light. And he followed that light. His life was transformed. He was set free from the oppression of darkness. No longer buying the lies that, that Satan is able to really find you susceptible to in the darkness. Able to be delivered out of all of that and ultimately having a love story that began with Jesus and ends with them on their honeymoon even right now, uh, enjoying a beautiful life to the full. But maybe you're in that darkness trying to find Jesus. It's It's a scary place because it is filled with lies, 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 lies. One upon another. And they don't seem that way. And of course you're up there. Yeah, you sound like some sort of fundamentalist guy saying that everything in the world is evil and lies. And No, I, I, I appreciate what, what, is, what is true and it really what is important from a secular standpoint as much as anybody I'd like to think. But, but I do know that when I allow myself to hang in darkness, to hang in isolation... To hang away from really the presence of God, away from prayer, away from spirit-filled people, away from any objectivity like that. And and I am then isolated in the the darkness. By the way, the Latin Bible translates darkness obscura. That's very telling, I think. When, When everything is obscured, it's easy to get a twisted view of who I am. And a twisted view of who God is. And to think of God as not somebody who's really out to bless me and deliver me and give me the best possible life life that I could ever imagine, but, but really someone who wants to constrict me and take away my freedom and not provide it. All of that is, is what you hear in darkness. But it's so hard, so hard to be able to break out of all of the filters that keep away light without at some point deciding to trust. That's why Jesus really does align trusting him, following him with coming into the light. And let me encourage you, if, if, if you're doing your best to try to get life, but it's just bios, and you're just trying to expand your bios, and it's not, not anything that you had imagined... Well, please, there is a life, a zoe, that God has got in store for you. But it's going to require you to really set aside all of the preconceived notions that are delivered courtesy, hand-curated by darkness. And instead, to really decide that I will look at the Word of God and really look at this with light and not put up any filters. I remember when someone first offered to study the Bible with me, And that was kind of the condition. I was so scared because I didn't mind reading the Bible so long as I could still put on my filters because I could still put on breaks when that occurs. But I remember deciding to pray and really study the Bible, not just by myself, because that's still in isolation, even though it's the Bible, I get it. But that's a a, a 21st century, even 20th century Americana concept, this individualism of being delivered through even, you know, better information in through my wonderful individualism is going to deliver me. No, it was, it was always community and encouragement and objectivity and love and, and even most importantly, all of that in a divine setting. Wow, that's when light is able to really to begin to shine. And Zoe 
is able to really find its way into your life. Now, for, for some of you, you've been kind of jamming along and enjoying it and loving it. and It's been wonderful. Praise God for, for all of that. Um, look who's here. Josh, you're back from camp. Hey, man, stand up real quick. He just got baptized right before he left. But maybe you're like Josh. Maybe you've been kind of walking down your Christian path for quite some time now. You know, and the honeymoon period begins to fade, and it's very easy after day four or five, even day six or seven, where he finds himself, uh, to actually entertain darkness again. It's been the default for most of our sentient life. And, and now it's very easy to allow ourselves back into that. We've got to consciously decide and choose light, choose to really follow Jesus again and again, to really know and enjoy everything that Jesus is disrupting in this massive, epic scene that is going on right here. And so perhaps your walk has been one that has been hampered by, by something along the way. Uh, maybe you've begun to harbor a, just an intense materialism, a, a trusting Trusting not in God, but just in self or in your 403B or 401K or Roth IRA. Uh, but perhaps you've you know, kind of engaged in some level of gossip to try to make yourself feel better compared to others. And you thought you'd feel better from it, but you knew at the end of the day, again, the shallowness and the emptiness of that. And, but, but you're not really kind of dealing with it fully. Or, or perhaps there's a, there's a lust or a flirtation that has found its way and is beginning to really titillate and tantalize you. And, and it's perhaps, you know, kind of growing. But you think, no, I got this under control. No, you don't. No, you don't. The, the, the minute that, that isolation and darkness comes, it'll, it'll flare again. Why not run against the army? Why not run through that wall? Scale that wall. Have the, the life that is described there in Psalm 18. With your light, with your deliverance, with your security, with your strength. Knowing that all of this is by you. That I'm not a fraud. That, I, that I'm not kind of some sort of a poser. That there, that there is no imposter syndrome that clings to me. That, that I am now who I am, bathed in beautiful life of Jesus Christ. To just live that life to the full. Every one of these I am statements is about life. Life that God wants for you. And to conclude, let me give you this, this encouragement. Because the ultimate light that will replace those massive lights there in Jerusalem, will be something else held up high. And it's going to be Jesus on the cross. And he ends our passage by saying, once the Son of Man is lifted up, all of this will come together. That in the light of the cross, in the light of that love, and if you're wondering, yeah, there's light, but is it for you? Yes, that light for you, that love for you, in light of the cross, embrace a fellowship of light. Paul tells the Ephesian church, you are children of light, have nothing to do with the sinful deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. John tells a, a church later, perhaps it's Ephesus as well in 1 John, if anyone sins, we confess our sins and he is faithful and just. Why? Because we have a fellowship in the light in, in 1 John 1 verses 5 through 10. Let's not be hampered. Let's not be duped. Let's not have our Christianity obscured by everything that the flesh and the world and the accuser wants. So in light of the cross, embrace fellowship in the light this week.
Confess anything that needs to come on out and celebrate Jesus's provision for you. Do so in the light of the love of the cross. Amen. We're dismissed.